This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Joined on Football CFB today by former Manchester United, Stoke, Sunderland, had another spell at Stoke and a few other clubs and Gibraltar International as well. Danny Higginbottom. Danny, thanks for joining me. Uh, my pleasure, mate. No problem at all. I uh, hope you're keeping well in these um, obviously bizarre times and, and worrying times. And, you know, like I say, I hope you're keeping well. Yeah, well, as I say, it's probably similar to yourself, just keeping as busy as we can at the moment and, and staying as safe as we can and following the guidance. Yeah, 100%. I think it's the least that we can do. I think there's still a few people around that um, aren't necessarily obeying to, to, to what's being asked of them. And, you know, I think the least we can do is, is to do what's being asked of us because there's a lot of people on the front line, whether it be the NHS, you know, in, in, in all different manners, you know, people on the front line doing everything that they can to, to try and keep us safe and to try and save as many lives as possible. And, you know, like I say, it's... It's, it's the absolute least that we can do to, to abide by what they're asking us to do. And hopefully we'll all get through this um, sooner rather than later. And obviously we know that there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of tragedies and, and deaths and what have you. But, you know, I think the idea from everybody is to, is to stop that as soon as possible. In terms of yourself, let's start with your career coming through at Manchester United, working with the likes of the late Eric Harrison. What was that like? Because he's so well respected as a coach, the Class 92 have went in record multiple times, seeing how impressive he was and how much he helped them. Yeah, he was he was an absolutely outstanding coach, but it wasn't wasn't just him as a coach, it was him as an individual as well. You know, he, he taught you the right principles as you were growing up. You know, I, I, I had Eric Harrison coaching me from the age of 10, 11 years of age. And then obviously as he moved, he moved further up as well then, you know, he, he was then one of my coaches when I became, when I became an apprentice. So, you know, I've got nothing but huge admiration and, and great things to say about him because he he made sure and no uncertain turn that you knew where you stood. He, he didn't suffer fools at all. And and like I say, as good as a coach he was in terms of producing fantastic footballers, he was also wonderfully, wonderfully good at producing good human beings as well. And, you know, during that time I was very fortunate to have some great coaches, you know, the likes of Brian Kidd, Nobby Styles, Paul McGuinness, Jim Ryan, Tony Whelan, Neil Bailey. You know, the list is endless and I was very fortunate to have those coaches throughout my time at the club. Coming through there as a youngster, obviously the culture of Manchester United is well known all across the world and the culture that like Alex Ferguson, Eric Harrison, all those wonderful coaches you mentioned set. What was the culture like coming through as a young player? Was it always not just about the football, but how you conduct yourself as well? Yeah, 100%. You know, I, I remember when I became an apprentice, we all got the suits, the Manchester United suits. And I remember the, the manager... Sir Alex Ferguson saying, you know, you're not just representing this club when you're here at the Cliff Training Ground or Littleton Road or Old Trafford as it, as it was at the time then as in terms of the training grounds. He said, but when you leave here as well, you know, when you're at home, when you're out doing socialising, when you're with your friends, you're still representing Manchester United. And that was something that was instilled into us at a, a very early age. And, you know, on the football pitch, you're expected to win every game, you know, coming all the way through the, through the youth 
through the youth side of things. And then, you know, if you got through to the first team or involved with the first team, it was the same thing. So there was that pressure on you, but you had that pressure from a young age. So it was something that, that you were able to deal with. Well, what was it like working with the class of 92 in particular at that time? Because obviously they're very well known. There's been films made about them. They're, they're owning a football club together now, very high profile. What was it like coming through with them? It was it was brilliant. You know, they were, I think, four or five years older than myself. So by the time I, I became um, an apprentice, you know, they, they were even knocking on the first team door or they were in the first team. But it was great. They they were brilliant with, with those younger players because only a few years previously they'd been in our position. So they were always there to give advice. And they were just such, such humble human beings, first and foremost. I think that was the thing. They were... They were an excellent set of players, no doubt about it. You know, I think you look at the class of '92, you could probably say that, say that every one of them at, at some point was classed as a world-class player, no doubt about it. And I don't think we'll ever see anything like that again. A group of players of that quality coming through at the same time and and staying at one club for so long and having so much success. But but they were brilliant. Like I say, they they had so much time for the younger players because they were only young first-team players themselves at the time. So any questions that you had. You know, they, they were always there to, to answer and just give you that little bit of advice. And then likewise, when I moved on playing against them afterwards, you know, they, they were always there as well after the game, have a little bit of a chat with them. So, you know, I've got nothing but good things to say about uh, about the class of 92 as, as, as about the rest of the players there as well, because they were unbelievably gifted individuals, but they were good human beings as well. They always took time to, you know, give, give you advice if and when you needed it. What was it like when you came through and you started training with the first team for the first time because I imagine the standards in the youth team are, are high but when you go to the first team I imagine personally from the outside looking at it must be a different level. Yeah it, it is obviously you know it's a, it's a big jump but I think the beauty of it was was that how the old regime was you had reserve team football so by the time I went and, and trained with the first team a number of the first team players had, had played played with me in the in the reserves. So that was also a help. The fact of you cleaning their boots as well as an apprentice, that builds a relationship. So when you go over and you are training with them, it's it, it's not as daunting as, as otherwise it could be because you had this relationship with the with the first team players. And they they were there with open arms to welcome you in as well. Don't get me wrong if you made a mistake, if you weren't doing what was expected of you, they, they would they would tell you under under no certain terms like they would any other player. And I think that that's something that was really good because there was this conveyor belt of of people, young players that were coming through that would then go and train with the first team. If they were good enough, they'd then be involved in the first team on a regular basis. Or if not, you know, a lot of players like myself, we ended up getting good moves from it as well. So it was it, it was a great training ground for us and and, and a wonderful experience. And, and and having that opportunity to play with and train with world class players that took training as seriously as as the, as the first team matches. You know, it set me in good stead for the rest of my career. Absolutely. You've had a, a career, as we're going to talk about, in football for a long time at a very high level. I still want you to stay on Manchester United in terms of your first team debut. It comes at Oakwell. You come on for Mike Clegg 60 minutes in. How proud were you that day? Or were you nervous is the crucial question. Yeah, a little a little bit nervous. Obviously, you know, it's my, my boyhood club and... I think on the Thursday, because I think it was 98, so I think a lot of the players that were going to the World Cup had been had been rested. So they weren't they weren't necessarily going to be involved with, with the first team. And a few of the younger players had been called up and I hadn't been call, called up. And I think it was a Thursday or the Friday. I was just downstairs. I was in the reserve team room and I'd 
just finished having the shower and I came out and Sir Alex Ferguson had, had previously asked me if I'd go and do um, like an appearance because obviously the first team players weren't going to be available because they were travelling so he called me up into his office and I said yeah no problem at all obviously a little bit disappointed I wasn't going to be involved with the first team and then as I've then gone into the shower I've come out I'm getting changed he just knocked on the reserve team door and just looked at me and went forget about that you're travelling with the first team and that was that was amazing for me and then you know, I just signed a new contract as well. So then going and travelling with the first team and then, you know, I didn't necessarily think I was going to come onto the pitch, but, but coming onto the pitch and, you know, making making my debut, all my family are Manchester United fans. They all came to the game as well. It, it was it was a dream a dream come true for me just to be involved with with such a, a wonderful club that, that, you know, is we all very close to our hearts because like I say, I've supported them all throughout my life and all my family have as as have as well, sorry. What did what does Sir Alex Ferguson say when you're a young player in that situation? Does he try and just take the pressure off you and get you to enjoy your debut? Um, not necessarily, no. Because I think if you're going to be, you know, I think if you look at players that have played at Manchester United for a considerable amount of time, not only have you got to be outstanding players. You know, I made no bones about it. I I was sold by Manchester United because Sir Alex Ferguson obviously didn't see me as, as being good enough for the first team. That's no problem for me whatsoever. But I think if you look at players that have longevity at, at a club like United, they have to be outstanding players, world-class players to a certain extent. But they also have to have an incredible mentality because the pressure's on you day in, day out. So when you make your, your first team debut as a young player coming through, there's no arm round the shoulder of go and enjoy it. It's a case of, right, you've got an opportunity now to show what you're capable of. And I think that's how it had to be, especially at that time. And, you know, you go all the way through, obviously, until Sir Alex Ferguson left. They were they were serial winners in everything that they did. And the mindset had to be like that. And that's why the manager with, with young players, when he was given an opportunity, it wasn't, you know, go and enjoy it, go and embrace it. It was, yeah, go and do your best. But, you know, make sure that after this appearance, make sure after this opportunity, you've, you've given a good enough performance to make sure I'm going to give you another chance. One of the things I find really interesting about your career, Danny, is the fact that you went on loan to Belgium when you were very young. What was that like in terms of a cultural difference and what would you say the benefits and challenges were? Um, at, at the time, I was the first one to go over there because obviously United had just got the association with, with Royal Antwerp and Jim Ryan, who was a reserve team manager at the time, he asked me, he said, you know, we'd like you to go on loan to Royal Antwerp and, you know, you're in good hands with the coaches there and the management side of things. So anything there they're asking you to do it's it's for the benefit of yourself so I went over in the first three months I was on my own it was a difficult time you know going to a going to a, a, a country where the language is a difficult language to understand at the best of times they speak Flemish which is a collection of of different uh, of different languages so that that was difficult as well being on my own first time away from home for a significant period but it made me grow up you know, I was I was only I think younger at the time when I went over, maybe 18, 19. I can't actually remember the exact age, but it was it was a life experience for me as well. I had to stand on my own two feet, had to do things for myself. And you know, in the dressing room, I think we had something like 19 different nationalities. So it was it was getting to understand everybody and just be just becoming an all-rounded, decent person. And and, and it, it was a great experience for me as in terms of doing that and growing up from from you know from a teenager into into a man because there's a lot of experiences that you had to deal with over there that you had to deal with on your own what was the standard of football like over there it's a tough one i think you know they, they'd been relegated either the season before um or the previous season 
And I think when you look at the standard, I would probably put it to now where you're looking at maybe maybe League One, something something along those lines. But there were players that did really well there and went on to play on to play at other clubs. And Royal Antwerp now, which I'm happy about, they're in the top league. They're a huge club. I think if you go back to, I think it was either 92 or 94, they played in, I think it was the, the UEFA Cup Final, the Cup Winners Cup Final at Wembley. You know, so they had a huge amount of history and they wanted to get back to the top league. And there was some talent there, there was no doubt about it. But I would probably say that that was, that was about the level of it. But it, it was brilliant for me because more than anything, it was first team football. You know, you can play reserve team football all you want. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean as much as first team football does where there's promotion, there's relegation, there's, there's players' livelihoods at, at stake. And that was something that I learned very quickly as well. After the loan spell, you returned to, to United. Is that the moment when you return, having got some games under your belt, you think, right, time to kick on and try and break into this team? Yeah, I came back and and obviously there was there was a lot of mide and a lot of trouble that went on in Belgium. But when we came back to Alex Ferguson, um, he gave us a new four-year contract. Um, I think that was probably the summer of 90... In '99, I think it was. They just won the treble, and he gave he gave me a new four-year contract, and he said, you know, you've done really well over there. Now this is the year for you for you to go and prove that that you can have a future here and, and do what do what you can do. And I was fortunate enough that you know played played a few first-team games, which was great for me in terms of my development as a player. What was it like when you got to play at Old Trafford for the first time as a first-team player? Because you talked about making your debut away from home. You're a man, massive United fan, so did your family. Describe how proud you were that day. It was just a dream, an, an absolute dream for me. Unfortunately, my, my parents weren't there. You know, they had they had no prior prior warning of it, and I didn't expect to play. I think the previous week had been substitute against Tottenham. Then midweek we played in the Champions League, and then I was on the bench and came on got maybe 25 minutes something like that in that game and then as I, as I got to Old Trafford I got into the dressing room and I knew nothing about it and Phil Neville just came up to me and went you're playing today and I was just like what? Just like you know are you joking? He went no he said you're playing he said X, Y and Z are injured or being rested and you're playing and I still didn't know you know how much to believe of it and then the manager came and named the team and and I was playing, so I rushed out quickly just on my mobile phone and just rang my mum and dad and just said, you know, I know you can't be here, but just to let you know, I'm I'm starting today. And, you know, obviously I, I was able to play until I was 35, still in my top three highlights because because of the club, because of what it meant, because of my whole family, you know, being Manchester United supporters and, and me being there since the age of nine. It was, it was just a, an unbelievable moment. And I never forget, because obviously I used to go to all the games and then, you know, you'd sit down, you'd sit down, and then the announcer would say, "You know, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the teams of United and whoever they were playing against." And I was in the tunnel when that was happening, and it was it was just surreal for me. It was just uh, an unbelievable moment and something that I'm I'm so grateful for to have the opportunity to to make my full debut and to make it at Old Trafford as well. You mentioned the fact that not only did you make your debut at Old Trafford, you get some game time in the Champions League and. What was then the Intercontinental Cup? What were those experiences like playing at the highest level as well? Unbelievable. I think I think what you do is, as a young player, when when you've been at the club for so long, because like I said, I've been there since, since a kid, you looked at it as you know a natural progression of, of of what you wanted to to do. You know because you know when you go to a club like Manchester United, your aim is to is to make it into the first team. If you don't, your aim is to have a good career uh, by doing well at United initially, and then you know moving on. But you don't really tend to take too much notice of it at the time. It's not really until you get a little bit older and you reflect 
the fact of going over to Brazil with the first team, you know, playing at uh, the Maracanã, going over to Tokyo in, in the World Club Championship and, and being on the bench, I think it was against Palmeiras and winning that. And just being involved in, and playing alongside some of these well, legendary legendary players from the club, it was it was brilliant. But you just you try and take it all in your stride at the time. So I think if you think too much about it at the time, it, it's not a good thing to do. But later on, and like I say, probably probably more so after my career had finished, I spent only an hour with my with my parents. My mum and dad came round, and with my wife and my children, um, and I spent probably about an hour. That was it. Just looking back. Um, throughout my career and, and the highlights that happened then it was right okay that's done now let, let's move on but you know there's some some really good times that I do hold day I've got to ask you the very cliche boring question you've probably had a thousand times did you ever get the hairdryer treatment from Fergie? No I don't think I did I th- I'm going to say not not because like I probably didn't deserve it at times uh, but I would probably say that a lot of the time I wasn't you know I, I made maybe I don't know two, three, four starts, maybe seven or eight appearances in total. So I wasn't actually within, in, in that vicinity where I'd made a mark on the pitch to to have been given gratitude or to have been, you know, had a go at, you know, I was I was on the bench and travelled quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, obviously I've seen him, you know, I've seen him <laughs> when, when, he, when he had lost it. And, you know, it, it's, it's a respect thing. You know, I think it's something that... that the beauty of that time, and I'm sure periods afterwards as well, when they had great successes, that he had he had players that, that were winners, that were men, and could handle all of that and dealt with all of that, and they didn't they didn't shrink because of it because of the type of players that they were. They they actually used it, you know, to to, to set them to go even further. And I'm sure that that's something that Sir Alex Ferguson did, you know, for 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 the vast vast majority of his of his managerial career and. You know who's who's anybody to argue against it? Because in my opinion, is is the greatest manager that, that that I've ever seen. Anyway, absolutely, I would agree with that as well. And it was tough to break in at Manchester United for you regularly. But let's be honest, there's been hundreds of players who have came from some of the biggest clubs in the world who just can't break in at United. But one thing I love about United, especially with young players, is the fact that you look at so many people like yourself. Um, who were at the club and then went on to have careers elsewhere. There's just so many examples of those over the years. What was it like leaving United and did, did Sir Alex give you some good advice when it came to leaving? It, it wasn't, you know, a lot of people have said, oh, it must have been difficult leaving because you're a United support. You've been there since the age of, I think, nine or ten. It wasn't, it was an easy decision for me because Sir Alex Ferguson rang me and said, that, you know, they'd offered, sorry, they'd, they'd accepted an offer from Derby. And he said to me, he said, you know, you've got 24 hours to, to think about it. Have a good think about it. He said, I'm not saying that you have to go. He said, but the likes of Mikel Sylvester, Dennis Irwin, Phil Neville, he said, they're ahead of you. Now, that for me was a sign that I needed to go. You know, I could have stayed um, and, and seen how, I think I had three years left on the contract that I was on, but I probably would have amassed 200 reserve games, something like that, and maybe been involved with the first team on a few occasions. I think if... If the manager at the time wanted, wanted me to stay, either would have said nothing to me or he could have rang me and said, listen, you know, we've had this offer from Derby. Just to let you know, we don't want you going anywhere. This just goes to show that you're doing well and just keep your head down and keep going. But when he rang me and said that they'd accepted the offer, it was it was a no-brainer for me. And it was a, it, it was a case of, you know, you sink or swim. I didn't want our outstay, my welcome. 
a, um, a huge club just for the wrong reasons because I supported them and it was great to be part of the club. So it was definitely 100% the right decision to, to do what I do and move forward. You moved to Derby, as you've said. You worked with another mental character in the game, Jim Smith. What was he like to work with? He was he was absolutely brilliant, and you know, un- unfortunately, uh, uh, another good man that's passed away uh, recently. Um, and you know, I was I was at his funeral, and th- there was a there was a few characters of the game that were there, and we had some great stories. What I loved about Jim Smith was that you know, when he signed me, he flew me over uh, to La Manga to his place. Sorry, in Marbella, we had a sit down, we had a talk and, you know, he said to me, he said, go back home, have a, have a day or two to think about it and then get in touch with me and let me know what you want to do. But he sold the club to me. It didn't take much time to think about it. And what I loved about Jim was that he could rip me to pieces. And I mean rip me to pieces after a game, up there with the best of them. And then two minutes later, two minutes later he'd be giving you a big sloppy kiss on your cheek and it was finished, it was done. He, he was old school and we all loved him for it. And some of his some of his um his after match tantrums and you know telling off that we used to get, they they were just they were absolutely brilliant. But then he was forgotten about. We'd all get back on the bus if we were playing away from home. And then we'd be we'd be travelling back on the bus and, and all you could smell was the cigar smoke coming back to where we were sat and the red wine was flowing and he was he was he definitely was he was one of the good guys and an absolute legend in the game and he'll he'll be he'll be sorely missed by everybody but I, I couldn't have wished for a better manager at the time because he was some somebody that I think I needed to help me understand that yes I left the Premier League club and went to another Premier League club but there was no comparison in the two as in terms of one challenging consistently at the top uh, to win the league and that that was the same throughout the time of United whatever age group you are you were. You were supposed to win everything that you that you took part in, whereas with Derby going going there, it was all about staying in the league and changing your mentality to to understand that. And Jim Smith was was absolutely brilliant in in helping me to to change the way that I looked at things. Who were the big characters within that Derby dressing room? In addition to obviously Jim, um, we had Craig Burley. He was brilliant. Uh, he was a captain at the time, Mr. Grumpy. Um, but he was great, you know, he, he, he was great for his younger players because he told us in no uncertain terms how he felt about us at certain times when things were going right. And we could do the same back with him. So you had Craig Burley, obviously Mark Poon was there at the time. We had Brian O'Neill that came. Um, Daryl Powell, who was the captain, he was, he was brilliant as well. And then if you look the next season, we brought in Fabrizio Ravanelli, who was... First in, first into the training ground and last out. He was he was an absolute, the ultimate professional and what he'd won in the game. It was great to learn from him. So all the players that I've just mentioned, to you know, they were senior professionals and players that we all looked up to. But they took everything really seriously. So if they if they could do that, then you know it was at least at least that we could do and another really good set of players for us to learn from. In terms of your time at Derby, you were a Premier League regular when the club were there. There was a few managerial changes as well. Colin Todd came in, John Gregory. Was the changes in, change in manager something that was difficult to get used to? Yeah, it was it, it was a big thing. You know, Jim Smith had been had been at Derby for so long. He'd brought me to the club. He'd got he'd got the club promoted to the Premier League as well from from what was the old excuse me, from what was the old first division. And um it's difficult because each manager that comes in, they have their own ideas on what they want to do. So when new managers come in, they want to bring in new players. They don't want certain players that are at the club. So, yeah, when you don't get continuity, 
you know, it, it becomes a problem. Every, everybody was gutted that, that Jim went. And then Colin came in, who I think was his assistant at the time. He had his idea. That didn't that didn't obviously work for too long because then John Gregory came in and he had his ideas. And unfortunately, we were we were relegated at the end of the season. Um, and it was very tough to take because obviously from my perspective, it was my first relegation. And you just feel as though you're letting a, a whole lot of people down and it can take a little bit of getting over and, at times when you get relegated, it's it's very difficult to bounce straight back up then as a club. In terms of your time at Derby, you won the Player of the Year, obviously, when you were at Derby. You played in the Premier League, obviously, the relegation came as well. Overall, how do you reflect on your time at the club? Um, it was a great experience for me. It was it, it, it was brilliant. It was just a shame, obviously, we got relegated. And, you know, as time went by, players, young players that had, that had grown together had to be sold. You know, Seth Johnson went, Rory Delap. Um, myself, Chris Rigger, uh, Malcolm Christie, Mark Poom, you know, players that, that they could get money for. So that was all really broken up, which was a which was a shame. But you know, I, I love my time at Derby. You know, I remember going to Old Trafford and I think we had two games left um, and we needed to win one of them. We went to Old Trafford and nobody expected us to get anything from there. And our last game was going to be against Ipswich. We went to Old Trafford and we won one nil. And uh, that was that was an amazing experience for me, and and what a way to to stay in the Premier League. But I've got I've got very fond memories, and still some still some great friends from my time at Derby, and not just players as well. You know the staff as well, whether it be groundsman that I see when I go there, the kit man Davo, who's still there, still going strong. Um, so it's always nice to to go back and visit when I'm doing the job that I'm doing now and see some familiar faces. From Derby, you then moved to Southampton and. Some characters you worked with there. Paul Sturrock was there at first. And then I've got to ask you about Harry Redknapp. Just how good a man-manager he is and, and what stories have you got about Harry's brilliance? Harry, Harry was great. You know, I, I'd heard nothing but good things about him when he came to the club. But I think, obviously, there was, you know, it was a little bit different because he'd come from Portsmouth to come to yeah. South Obviously, you know, the, the hated rival. So, obviously, mm. that wasn't going to go down well. Um, and, you know, he brought some good plays and brought the best out in some plays, but unfortunately it just wasn't enough. And whereas I'd been, whereas we'd stayed up in the Premier League when it was a derby by beating Manchester United, we actually got relegated um, when we played at home against Manchester United. So it was it was difficult times because the first season I was there, it was Gordon Strachan that signed me. I think we finished eighth in the Premier League. We got to an FA Cup final, got to Europe. And then when Gordon left, everything just seemed to fall apart. We had Paul Sturrock, who I don't think was given his, his fair crack of the whip. And then we had Steve Wigley for a bit, then Harry But I think when Harry Redknapp came in, it was it was very difficult then for us to stay up. But, you know, he did everything that he could, try to get us to stay up, but it, it, it just didn't work. And it was it was a real disappointing time because it should have been a club that, that should never have gone down. You know, you finished eighth, you finished 12th, and then all of a sudden... Finishing, I think, rock bottom of the league, and that was another real disappointing time of my career as well. After the club goes down, Harry leaves, George Burley comes in, not really overly convincing in the championship. Was it time for you to definitely move on then? Yeah, well, I think Harry stayed, Harry stayed for a while, um, and then and then he left. George Burley came in. I had a, I had a few issues with the contract because I was promised things when we were in the Premier League and I was promised things when we got relegated and those things weren't weren't forthcoming. Um, so I sort of fell out with the powers that be at the club and, you know, I always got on all right with George. You know, he brought some some really good young players through, some exciting times for them. And, you know, the following season after I left, they did they did really well in, um, in the league. Um, but 
I just got to the point where, you know, I just felt as though I was being disrespected by the people that, that were running the club at the time. And it's not something that I still want to be part of. Uh, and nothing that could be resurrected, nothing to do with George Burley whatsoever. He was a manager. It wasn't it wasn't him that the issue was with. It was it was it was like I say, the powers that be not promising things that sorry, not doing 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 things and 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 not keeping the promises from from something that they should have done. So obviously, you know, I ended up being put on the transfer list. I was only told <laughs> I was only told about it by the press officer uh, because I refused to sign the contract that was put in front of me. He was sign the contract or go on the transfer list. So I said, well, I'll go on the transfer list. Then I was training on my own for a few days, uh, but then I was fortunately able to get a move. You, you did get a move, and and it was Stoke City you joined. Now, you obviously had two spells at the club. It wasn't the Stoke City that many people will think at this time that was in the Premier League and flying high in the Premier League. It was Stoke in the Championship. Tony Pulis was there, still his manager. What was that like, working with him in the Championship? And what was he like to work with? Because obviously you must have enjoyed it to go back a second time. Yeah, it was it was brilliant. Um, I was at a crossroads, I think, in, in my career and leaving Southampton. I remember driving from Southampton on my way down to Stoke. The amount of people that were calling me saying, you know, what are you doing? You're leaving, you're leaving a club that's potentially going to be challenging for the Premier League um, to go to a club that potentially is going to be at the wrong end of the table. And I had to go off what Tony Pulis had told me, his ideas that he had. And it was a leap of faith. And... I one of the best decisions I ever made was to go there. You know, I went to a club with obviously a new manager coming in, when it's only Pulis, which <coughs> excuse me, which I think a lot of people questioned him because he was coming back to a club. So there's a lot of not not a lot of uh, disharmony with him coming coming back. But there was a few people that weren't happy that he was coming back, and um, we didn't we didn't hit the ground running. It wasn't a great start, but then players started to come in. The likes of Lee Hendry, Andy Griffin, Patrick Berger, um, Rory Delat, uh, Ricardo Fuller. You know, we brought in some absolutely outstanding players then. And unfortunately, the season just wasn't long enough for us to get into the playoffs. But I, I thoroughly enjoyed my, my year there. It was one of my best seasons that I've had in terms of enjoying my football. And the togetherness and the players of the club, it was, it, it, it was second to none. It was, it was absolutely wonderful times at the club. Definitely wonderful times. You were very well respected as well. That was shown because you won again. You won another Player of the Year. But when Michael Dubry leaves, you also take the captaincy on. Being a captain is that something you relished? Yeah, it was. I've been fortunate enough for other clubs to have the captaincy at certain spells um, at Derby and at Southampton. You know, there was times when I was captain, and it was it's a privilege and an honour, you know, to to be named captain of a of a football club. But it. Shouldn't change the way that you are on the pitch. I always, you know, like to think that I was quite vocal on the pitch, um, you know. So that didn't really change anything. But to be asked to be captain, of course, yeah, you know, it's 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 something that you know it was an honour for me to to be able to to do that and to have that captaincy at Stoke when when Dubs left. Um, and you know, myself personally, it was a great it was a great season for me. Really disappointed at the end because we we believe that we were probably. Towards the the final third of the season, we believed that we were arguably one, if not if not the best teams in the league, and believed that you know if the season was that little bit longer, or if we'd started a, a little bit better, then we'd have if we didn't get up automatic promotion, we'd definitely have gone to the playoffs. 
was the draw of Sunderland not only being in the Premier League but working under one of your former teammates, Roy Keane, just too too good to turn down? Yeah, one hundred percent. I think first and foremost it was getting back to the Premier League, going to a a club of Sunderland's um, stature at the time. Obviously, you know they're going through a bad spell at the moment. But then the icing on the cake was to was to go and work for for Roy Keane as as my manager. You know, I'd had him at, at, at United. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to play a few times on the same team as him. Been unfortunate enough a few times to play against um, against him as well. And he was just he was just a, a born winner. You know, he was so driven, and it really enticed me to actually go and work under him. And you know, for him to want to sign me as a player as well. You know, I was delighted about that too. What was Roy Keane like as a manager? He's known for his fire and his passion as a player. As a manager, is he someone that was basically, I don't want to say like Alex Ferguson, because I wouldn't compare anyone to Alex Ferguson in terms of what they've achieved, but was he like Alex Ferguson in the sense that he set incredibly high standards? Yeah, 100%. It was, it was exactly the same as it was at United, which was, if you don't train right, you're not going to be playing. You know, So you, you had to train how you played. No matter under Roy, no matter how well you played the previous Saturday, if you didn't, if you weren't given everything, training all the next week, you wouldn't play. And I think everybody appreciated that because it didn't matter who you were. Um, he used to join in on Thursday with us and was still the best player by a distance. When we had an eleven v eleven, he was he was incredible. But I think if you look back at that season, just look at how many goals we scored late on in games, and that was something that he that he drilled into his players. You know, the game is ninety minutes; you never switch off. And I don't think that he gets the credit that he deserves for not only taking Sunderland to the bottom of the championship at the time, you know, and getting them automatic promotion, but then stabilising them in the Premier League because we know how tough that how tough that can be. But he was he was he was a born winner and he he was trying to transform that into management. But I think he probably got frustrated at times when things that he could do with ease because he was such a world class player, other players you know found it a little bit more difficult to be able to do. I asked you earlier on, did you see the hairdryer of Sir Alex? You said you'd saw it, but you weren't on the other end of it. I'm imagining Roy Keane's hairdryer was was something you've seen quite a few times. Yeah, I saw it a few times, but he had he had a way of like obviously he could get angry, but because of because of him, because of the the player that he was, because of the way that he carries himself, he could get his message across by just speaking. You know, the, the the way in which he spoke. And yeah, of course, obviously, you know, as a manager, he wants to win as players. We wanted to win. And there was times when when he would go off. But there was there was no there was no issue with it, you know, because as players, like I say, I'd had Jim Smith who could go off. You know, I'd had Tony Pulis who could go off. I'd seen Sir Alex Ferguson at times. I'd seen Gordon Strachan, you know, so it wasn't an issue. It wasn't an issue for me at all as as an individual when he when he did get angry when he did get annoyed because at the end of the day as a manager you want the best from your players and if you're not getting the best from your players or don't think you're getting the best from players then you're well within your rights to be able to say it. Were you at the club when Liam Miller was there the late Liam Miller bless him because there was obviously the story that's been told a few times that bless him he was late every single day and that would just drive Roy Keane crazy. Yeah, Liam, you know, may he rest in peace. Lovely, lovely guy, wonderful teammate. And, you know, it was it was such tragic news, you know, a few years ago when when he passed away. Uh but yeah, him and I think it was Ross Wallace as well. I think they travelled in together and at times they um they'd be late. But the thing was with with Roy as a manager was that such an intelligent individual. He would see things 
and he may bring it up two or three weeks later, but he'd wait. He'd wait until the time when he was right and he would do it. But yeah, Liam, Liam was somebody along with along with Ross that yeah, could could be late and would come up with their excuses. And the excuses might be all right at the time, but then, you know, a little bit later on down the line they'd be brought they'd be brought up to him in no uncertain terms. Um but yeah, Liam was and I First and, first and foremost was an outstanding human being, was a lovely, lovely lad. But I tell you what, what a player he was as well. You know, some of the times when he when he was playing for us, he'd, he'd get goals or he'd do something that would just change a game. And no doubt he is he, he is missed by so many people. But he, he was a he was a great lad and you know, secondary to that, he was a wonderful player as well. Absolutely, completely echo that. And what I want to actually ask you about putting you on the spot with this one, are you shocked that Roy Keane's not in management at the moment? Because I think there's definitely a place for him, maybe in the Football League, not the Premier League, obviously because he's maybe recent record, but I definitely think personally there's a place for him in management. Yeah, I'd, li- I'd like to see him get, you know, if he wants to get another opportunity, because obviously we've seen him be assistant manager at um, a few different places, obviously most recently. Um, he's at Forest, he's at Re- Republic of Ireland, I think Aston Villa as well. I'd love to see him back in the game in some capacity, definitely. Um, you know, whether whether people will argue that that he can't necessarily get as wound up or, or as angry in the dressing room as he may do, then there could be an argument to that because I think the generation of players that are coming through now, mm. through no fault of their own, it's just a generation, they probably can't handle criticism and 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 use it in a constructive way, in a positive way, as maybe my generation did. And I think that that's something that, I think if you speak to all managers, I think it goes for any manager. So when when you hear when people do say like about Roy Keane, oh yeah, but he, he could get too angry in the dressing room and things like that. I think if you spoke to any manager now that's been manager for the last 10, 15 years, they will probably tell you that they have had to change as football's changed as well. It's just the way that it is now. And I think the biggest thing now for, for managers is man management. And when I speak to managers, <coughs> when I speak to managers, you get the impression that there's some managers do have to change the way that they are, their approach, because at times, like I say, it can be frustrating because you want to have a go at a play, but you've got to go about it a different way. That's, that's very true, I think. <laughs> You're spot on with the, the importance of man management. We've seen that so many times. Obviously, the fact you played for Sunderland, I have to ask you the obvious question. What was it like to play in those derby matches against Newcastle? And did that goal really go in off your ear? <laughs> it's brilliant. The first thing someone said to me, he said someone said that it's gone off in, it's gone off your ear. It didn't go off my ear, but I have got massive ears, so you can see why somebody thought that it did. So may, maybe they were looking and thinking about how quickly I got from our box to, to Newcastle's box to put the ball into the back of the net, and maybe they thought that maybe I flapped my ears and got there a little bit quicker. So there could be some truth in that, but I, it was an unbelievable occasion, you know, to, to be part of that and, and then to score in the game as well was was absolutely brilliant and you know we've we've seen the the show on the telly you know the the Sunderland Till I Die the documentary and what they've got the supporters up there they're just they're just phenomenal they're absolutely unbelievable I can't speak highly enough of them they will tell you when they're not happy and I have no problems with that because they're 100% behind you and I think what you've got to understand when you go to these clubs when you play for these clubs is that if you're going to have the adulation from you, you're going to have them sticking behind you, you're going to have them filling the ground out even when things aren't going well. You've got to understand that they deserve to be able to tell you how they feel about you as an individual and how they feel about you as a team. You can't have them 
being unbelievably turning up in the numbers and then not expect them to to criticise. You know, and that's one thing I always said as a player, you know, when you when you play for a club and all these supporters are coming through the gate, more often than not, supporters will deal with anything as long as they see a player giving 100% on the pitch. And that's what that's what we need to understand that, you know, they work hard all week. You know, it's, it's a working class area, Sunderland is, like Stoke was. And at the end of the week, I'm not saying they want to be entertained, but what they want, they want to turn up and they want to see players giving everything like they're doing Monday to Friday in the job that they're doing. And if you do that, they'll deal with bad performances. But if you're not doing that and performing poorly, then they'll tell you quite rightly so. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. I think seeing players give their all, as you've said, everyone's going to have a bad game. Even the best players in the world have bad games. But if they're trying, absolutely echo that as well. Now, after Sunderland, it's back to Stoke. It's a different Stoke this time. It's Stoke that's in the Premier League. How did the club change when you went back, considering they were now a Premier League club? Hadn't changed that much, if I'm, if I'm being honest. When the, the season that was there in the Championship, which was obviously only a year in between, you know, yeah. we used to, used to get changed at the stadium, and then we used to drive our cars over to uh, the training ground, because there was nothing there. It was just a field. And then we'd... Um, get back in the cars, go back to the stadium and have our food. Now, our first year in the Premier League, I think, if I'm not mistaken, we got Aston Villa's old porter cabins and they were put on the training grounds. There still wasn't that much there. You know, we had all the porter cabins out. They made they made um, a little bit of a temporary basis where we'd have our food. But other than that, not too much was, was different. You know, the training ground was still the same. Obviously, they'd had to adjust certain things in the stadium. But we liked it. That's, that's how we liked it. I think that went along with with the siege mentality that we had as well because there was obviously a lot of stuff put out there about being called a rugby team, you know, certain individuals not wanting us in the Premier League. But we just used that in our favour to to try and make sure that we stayed in the Premier League. And, and it was our home form, which was incredible, that, that kept us in the league. And, you know, I'm not just saying it, but I've never played in a better atmosphere than that in my life. And I think at the time it maybe held 28,000. It was incredible. Well, that's the thing. When you went back to Stoke, as we said, not only in the Premier League, but you became an established Premier League club and we're doing really well. Obviously, everybody knows about Rory Dalap and his throw-ins, um, amongst other things, but it just seemed like a really tight-knit group under Tony Pulis at Stoke. Was that the case, obviously, from the inside as well? Yeah, it was an incredible dressing room. You know, I think one of the things that Tony Pulis wanted to do, he wanted to bring in good players, which he did, but he also wanted good characters. And I think that's what we had, and there was such a togetherness uh, within that dressing room, it was, it, it, it's probably got to be one of the best dressing rooms, if not the best dressing room that I've been involved in. And it helped us no end when we were out on the pitch because everybody was there to help each other. There was no individualism with it. You know, it was, it was go out on the pitch and, you know, if somebody's having a hard time, then his teammate would come over and help him. Likewise, you know, throughout the pitch. And the togetherness saw us through. I have no doubt about that. And we made two key signings as well in January. We brought Matty Everington in and James Beattie, who were both absolutely different class for us. They got us over the line and then some as well. The quality that they brought in, the goals, the assists, and that just helped us along our way. But there's just so many brilliant moments, you know, in particular in those in those first two years in the Premier League when, you know, there was bookmakers paying out, I think, after the first or second game. So, you know, whether that was as a publicity stunt or whatever it was, all that did, that we just used that to make sure that we stayed in the league. And, you know, people talked about the style that we had. We couldn't go toe-to-toe with 
8% of the rest of the Premier Leagues in terms of how they play because we would have been beaten. So what we had to do, we had to come up with something that was strong, that we were going to be better at than at least three clubs in the league. And we did that. And, you know, we'll make no apologies for, for doing it the way that we did it. One player I want to ask you about, um, in particular, actually, from your time at Stoke both spells, is Ricardo Fuller. He seems like a larger-than-life character, but I think he's actually a pretty underrated player in the grand scheme of things as well. Yeah, he, I played with Ricardo at Southampton, and um, you know, built up a really good relationship with him. He's a great lad, lovely lad to have around the dressing room as well. And he had he had unfortunate injuries because I think if he didn't, yes, he played in the Premier League with Stoke. Um, and did unbelievably well, is rightfully a legend at the football club. But I think if he didn't have the injuries that he did, I think he would have played an even higher club in the Premier League. Some of, some of the, the games that he'd win for us with just his individual brilliance was was just jaw-dropping at times. You know, the things that he could do with the ball. And like I say, I was with him at Southampton. And when I moved from Southampton to Stoke, the day that I signed, Tony Pulis just said to me, he said, you know, who would you sign? Would you sign Dexter Blackstock or Ricardo Fuller? And Dexter was a, was a young player at the time, obviously went on and had a really good career. Um, but th there was just, there was only one answer for me. It was I said to him, I said, you've got to get Ricardo Fuller if you can get him. Because he's a difference maker and you'll love him. I think what he can contribute, he'll create something from nothing. When there's a nil-nil, he'll make it a one-nil for you. And, you know, the rest is history and he'll go down in history at, at Stoke City for everything that he did. There, what a player he was, as you've said, rightfully a Stoke legend. Um, in terms of him coming into Stoke, as you said, you the sort of a, a role in him coming to the club. Um, I've never been given any credit for it, <laughs> never been given any credit for it. It was seen as a, it was seen as you know, Tony Pulis masterstroke. But I was asked my opinion and I gave it. And you know, obviously, whether he'd already made his mind up, Tony, or not, you know, he brought him in. and what he did when he brought Ricardo in, him and Mama Sadibi up front, you know, just clicked instantly, you know, in the championship that season and then the following season as well. And they went from strength to strength as well. And then, like I say, Rory Delac came in, Liam Lawrence came in, Lee Hendry came in, Salif Jow came in, Andy Griffin came in, Jonathan Fortune came in. I'm sure I'm missing some players as well. John Parkin came in. And, you know, we had stages of the season where we had Patrick Berger on the bench. And you're just like looking over to the bench and thinking to yourself, this ain't the club I joined. There's other play like him on the bench, but it's just what he did. And every single one of the players that I've just mentioned to you there, all great characters as well, and all brought something to the team. And I remember the first time probably when, when Tony had got quite a few signings into the club that he wanted to get and could get them all on the pitch at the same time. We went to Leeds and we beat him 4-0 at Leeds. And we just went on an unbelievable run from then. I think we hold the record still at Stoke. I think we went seven games, um, keeping clean sheets, I think, seven games in a row. So, you know, there was obviously something starting to happen at the club. And, and that was a season really then, which then set the standards for the following season in which they got promoted. In terms of the time in the Premier League, you mentioned the fact that some of the characters you played with there, Sees the more you stay in the Premier League year on year and you establish yourself, what's it like when more high-profile players are coming in year on year? Is that when you realise that the club really is on the up? Yeah, I think 100%. I think what you've got to do each year that you're in the Premier League, you have to bring 
you know, a better caliber of player in. There's no doubt about it. I think you have, to, in, in my opinion, you have to sign players just to stand still and you have to sign quality players just to stand still. But because we had such a strong dressing room, Tony had no problem with going signing, going then and signing players that, you know, may have a little bit of a, you know, a backstory behind them at previous clubs or it might not work out for them at previous clubs for one reason or another. And I can honestly say every player that came into the club when I was there, no matter what reputation that they had before they came to the club, fitted in unbelievably well. And I like to think that it showed on the pitch then in every game that we played. And yes, we'd lose a lot of games because the other teams were better than us. But it wasn't for the want of trying. It wasn't for the want of everybody sticking together. What made Tony Pulis so good as a manager? Because his record at Stoke was very good and you also had the FA Cup run. I know you ended up missing out towards the end because of injury, but what was he like as a manager? Because I think, again, someone who can, can at times be unfairly pigeonholed into being this dinosaur-type figure, but his record speaks for itself. Yeah, it built from the back. You know, I think it's it's at times now what is forgotten in, in football. You know, we all look at... Your goal scorers, we all look at your assist makers and we quite, we quite rightly look at them and think, wow, unbelievable players and it's an art form. But somewhere along the way over the last couple of years, defending is not seen as an art form by, by too many now. And that was the one thing that Tony Pulis always said, you know, we build from the back. If we go onto the pitch with, with a clean sheet, if we have a clean sheet, we're going to get a point. That's the least that we're going to get if we keep a clean sheet. So... It was it was very repetitive as in terms of the training that we'd do, but there was no argument because then we'd go onto the pitch on the Saturday and everybody knew what was expected of them. Whether you were a substitute, whether you're someone that hadn't played for a while, whether you're someone that was injured, when you went on the pitch, you knew exactly what was expected of you. And that's exactly what he did. And I would also say as well, from from my own point of view, his man management skills, it could make you feel ten foot tall. Um so when you were out on that pitch, you felt unbeatable. And and that was what he did collectively. And he trusted his players in terms of, as time went on, when he signed players, he trusted the strength of the dressing room to make sure that the player that was coming in fitted in well. And, and I can't speak highly enough of him because he, he did resurrect my career. There's, there's no two doubts about it. Well, I have to say, personally, I um, hope you don't mind me saying this, um, that spell you had, the second spell at Stokes, what I really remember you from in terms of your career, you had a really good career overall, but that spell when Stoke were becoming established in the Premier League, you were one of the big personalities and one of the big players in that team that year on year, going to teams going to the Britannia really struggled with, Arsenal in particular. Um, is that probably the spell in your career you look back on it, it with most fondness in a way because of the success you had? Yeah, 100%. It was, it was my most enjoyable time of, of my career. I think what we had... Um, in, in the early stages of the Premier League, you had you had a group of supporters that were in sync with the players. You know, it, it, as I've said previously about Sunderland, it was a working-class area, and they had a working-class group of players as well. And what we may not have had, technically-wise, don't get me wrong, we had some very technically gifted players, but at times what we did what we didn't have technically-wise, we made up for any, with endeavour and sheer hard work on the pitch. And I think what happened because of that, because because the team probably prob probably the team was very similar to the city. And I think the supporters appreciated that and the players appreciated that. So when you turned up on a Saturday, you know, even after playing there for two years in the Premier League, your hairs would still stand on end coming out of the tunnel because it was just a wall of noise and 
it was just, it was incredible. And some teams would come to our place and they were beaten before the game was begun because they just, they couldn't believe the veracity of, 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 of the crowd and, and then everybody coming together and then actually dealing with our style of play. Whereas you had Chelsea and Manchester United who were the two best teams at the time in the Premier League. They came and they dealt with it and their quality came through and we, we saw that in particular in the first couple of years, how they, how they did deal with it. Um, and their quality came through and, and shone through, but we had some great results in the opening few years in the Premier League and as time went on as well. Um, and that was, that was a collective between the supporters and the players and the connect was... The connection was was something that I'd never seen before. Absolutely, I totally agree. It's a, a spell that I think Stoke fans, and especially now, it's that whole "be careful what you wish for" aspect where Tony leaves. They had another couple of decent years, and then obviously now are in the championship. So good luck to them as they bounce back. But yeah. following Stoke, you had a few loan spells. Um, what was it like getting out loan? I mean, Ipswich, Forest, Sheffield United, just to name a few. What were those loan spells like? Um, it was different for me because obviously previous to that, the only real loan spell I'd had when I was 18, 19 years of age, when I, when I was at Royal Antwerp, what I, I did my cruise ships, you know, so, so I missed a lot of time at Stoke and, and when I got back, I knew that my time was coming to an end because I think I did my cruise ship 32 and I'd been, I'd been left behind. I'd, I'd give everything to get back to full fitness. I played a couple of games for Stoke. I think I played one in, one in the Premier League when I came back and then the Europa League, I played a few games, but I knew that. I'd probably given everything to, to get myself back fit so I could just prove to myself that I could get back from this injury. And I didn't have, I don't think I had too much left in the tank. And I was the first one probably to, to realise that because there's no worse feeling in the world when you want to do something, but your body won't allow you to do it. And at the time I come back, you know, I was pushing on 33 then. And, and it was difficult for me. So I went on loan to, to Nottingham Forest. I really enjoyed my time there on loan. Um, and then the summer came about, then I went to Ipswich and we had Paul Jewell as a manager, then Mick McCarthy came in and I really enjoyed working with Mick McCarthy. Um, I played played the first quite a few games under him and then I came out of the team and quite rightly so because I was playing poorly. Um, but he wanted me to stay till the end of the season and I said, well, you know, I'll stay till the end of the season, but if a club does come in that's closer to me because of the family situation and everything, you know, my family's still being based um, up north, can I can I then go? And he was absolute gentleman. He said yeah. And then the opportunity came up to go to Sheffield United, which was a league below. And I rang him, and um, he accepted it. He said, Danny, he said I understand fully. He said, you know, it would have been nice to have you here, not necessarily to be playing all the time, but around the place because we were in a relegation fight. But thankfully, you know, Mick McCarthy, they got out of the relegation battle and then went out to on to have some some good times in the championship and. I've got a lot of respect for Mick McCarthy because he was brilliant for me and, and TC as well as his assistant at the time. They were they were absolutely brilliant with me whilst I was there. And then I went to Sheffield United um, and stayed, stayed. I think I went there permanently and was there from January to the end of the season. But there was a clause in my contract if I played a certain amount of games that I'd be there then the following year. Um, and then when I was there the following year, David Weir came in, you know, young manager and... He, he was going very much down the younger player route, which I had no problem with whatsoever. Um, and then the media side of things started to take off for me and started getting getting good for me. And for, for once in my career, football was starting to get in the way of what, what I wanted to do next. And I thought the time was right then for me to go semi-professional. So it enabled me to kill two birds with one stone. 
you know, try and find my way in the media side of things, see whether it would work out whilst playing football as well. So I decided to do that by going to Chester. Well, that, that's brilliant that you've, you've mentioned that. I'm actually part of the fans' ownership scheme at Chester and I'm interested to, to, to speak to you about the club in the sense that one of the it's a, it's a club that obviously has a unique history from the Chester City days, trying to rebuild itself now. You are basically one of those people that's very highly regarded because you took part in a game where they beat Wrexham 2-0. Describe that for me. I remember, so my first training session was on the Thursday and I think they played five games because they'd just been promoted to the conference. <clears throat> yeah. And they played five games and I think lost all five. And I'd gone to the game on the Tuesday um, just to go and have a look and see what it was. And they got beat at home. I can't remember who, who it was that they played. Um, I, can't, I can't remember to say. I don't know if it was Barnett, somebody like that. And um, it was actually Colin Murray. You know, he said to me, he said, you know, would you, because obviously he's a he's a big supporter of Chester and does a, does a lot of very good work for Chester as well. And he'd mentioned it to me and I said, yeah, I said, you know, why not? So I spoke to the manager and then everything was signed. Then I went and when I signed up on, um, I think I signed maybe on a Thursday and had my first training session, there was a few Stoke supporters that, that played for the club. And then they were like coming up to me and going, what are you doing here? You know, because obviously a couple of years ago, I was still playing for, for Stoke. And I was like, I'm signing for the club, and they they didn't take me seriously. I thought, oh yeah, okay, no problem. And then when I went out to the training pitch, then I think they understood and realised. And then, as you quite rightly said, you know, we played against Wrexham, and they haven't won there for God knows how many years. So we've gone there, and obviously it was a bubble game, so all the supporters had to travel by bus. Wrexham got quite a big stadium. You know, there's no love lost between the two sets of supporters. And we dominated the game and we won 2-0. And it was the first win of the season for, for Chester. You know, I was delighted. It was my debut. And I remember speaking to the manager and some of the senior players afterwards and just saying, why are you in the position that you're in? Because if you play like this week in, week out, then you shouldn't be in this position. But what you find is as you go lower down and you get to, you know, non-league levels, there's some yeah. very good players there. But the reason that they're not playing higher up is because they have a lack of consistency, not because they don't have and I found that out on the time with Chester as time went along. In terms of Chester as a club, playing in the non-league, was it something that was good because you were, as you say, killing two birds with one stone, but ultimately also, not to disrespect Chester or Altrincham as well, but kind of frustrating in the sense that you're playing with players, as you've said, who are trying their absolute best, but just clearly aren't at the standards of the Premier League or Championship level for obvious reasons. It could be a little bit of a frustration, but but not much, not much at all. Yeah. You know, I, I grew I grew up with with non league football, driving well, being driven around everywhere because my brother played non league football, and there's there's just a real good factor about about non league. You know, you, you meet you meet you meet some some really good individuals that don't follow the club for. For the success, they don't follow the the club because of the the fame around the club. They follow the club because they love the club. They give everything for the club, and there's just something that's so unique, so unique and so raw about non-league football because of that. And and Chester was no different, and Altrincham was no different. Obviously, Altrincham growing up there, I was always watching Altrincham, whether it was paying or sneaking in to go and watch them throughout their glory years in the early nineties. So I've I have a big affiliation with non-league football. Um, so for me, it was. It wasn't a case of me looking down my nose at it. It was 
it was a case of me being there and thinking, right, okay, can I help out in any way? Can I help some of the younger players? But like any other club that I played for, it was an honour for me to to put the Chester shirt on, likewise as it was for Ocean when I played for them as well. In terms of yourself, Danny, I have to ask you about Gibraltar. How did that situation come about? I think it's your, it's your mum, isn't it, that's got the links there? Yes. So I think it's, I'm not 100 but I think it's my my mum's Spanish, but my grandma is Gibraltarian, as far as I'm aware. And there'd been tentative calls years previous, as in terms of what I represent Gibraltar, but they weren't recognised as uh, they weren't recognised by UEFA. So it was something that wouldn't have made sense to Gibraltar and wouldn't have made sense to me at the time because of the financial the financial situation with it by getting me over there and playing and what have you. So then. When I went to Chester, the phone call started again. We'd just been recognised by UEFA. You know, would you like to to come and play for us? And I think we played away maybe at Hereford. And afterwards, I got the phone call. Then we had a home game on the Saturday. Um, and after that, I flew out there, out to, to Portugal, to the Algarve, because they couldn't play in their stadium because it wasn't seen as up to scratch for UEFA. So I went in there and I wanted to make sure that when I spoke to the lads that were there and the management and the coaching staff, I just I wanted them to know that I hadn't gone there just for a jolly up. I'd gone to, you know, if you wanted advice to help me, I don't want to take any success of what you've done. You've done all of this. I'm just coming in now. And if there's anything I can do to help along the way, then brilliant. And we were playing, I think it was Slovakia on, I got there on the Saturday, Sunday I got there. I think we were playing Slovakia on the Tuesday and everybody was saying it's going to be 8-9, 10-0. You know, first game recognised by UEFA. And Slovakia are, uh, you know, a country that has some very good players. And they came over and it was back to the wall, but somehow we managed to draw 0-0. And afterwards in the dressing room, that's probably when I realised what it meant to the Gibraltarian people because everybody was crying. Um, not because of the result, but because of because of what they did achieve, they'd worked so hard to be recognised by UEFA and gone through so much, so many setbacks, so many knockbacks, and to eventually get that, and then to top it all off by drawing nil-nil against Slovakia was was their dreams come true. So it, it, it was a privilege for me to to be part of you know the end of their journey, um, and it was it was a great experience. Following your time at Chester and Aldringham, representing Gibraltar. Retirement comes, but obviously you're in a lucky position in the sense that, not lucky because obviously you earned the, the media career because you have to be good at it or you won't be on there, but you had the media career to focus on. Is that something you were always passionate about? Because, as I say, you're someone I enjoy listening to, whether it's on Sky or Talk Sport or whatever you're on. Um, I think it, it, it was something that when I when I got injured and missed the, missed the cup final for Stoke, I was obviously in, in the spotlight at the time because they wanted somebody associated with Stoke and obviously I've been playing regularly that season. So I was asked to do things, I think, at the time for, for ITV. I think ESPN were covering it as well. Um, the BBC wanted me to do things and I did. And, and when I was doing it, it was something that I enjoyed doing. I didn't know how far I was going to go, but because of my football career was still of most importance to me. Um, but then a few years later on, I remember Re Rebecca Lowe now, who's working for NBC. Um, you know, she's a presenter over in America. And she's absolutely brilliant at what she does. I remember having a conversation with her probably a few months ago, and she said to me, she said, you probably won't remember, but I interviewed you before, I think, one of the Stoke games leading up to the cup final. And afterwards, she, she said, I, I went to my bosses and I told them how well you've done and we should keep 
keep an eye on you in, in time to come. But I didn't know that at the time, but it was something that I did enjoy. And then what I started to realise was that when I was at Sheffield United and I knew that I wasn't going to be in the manager's plans, even in pre-season, you know, I was I was driving to London straight from pre-season training and everybody knows how our pre-season training could be. And I was driving three hours to London, doing a show for two hours, driving three hours back, having four hours sleep and then getting in my car again to go training at Sheffield United. And that started to tell me then that I was really starting to enjoy it. Unfortunately, I got opportunities to do it. And that was part of the reason I probably retired when I did, because football was starting to get, A, football was starting to get in the way of what I was doing next. And in only my second game for Altrincham, there was a 50-50 challenge and I didn't go into it. I didn't want to get hurt. And I always knew that when I went off, when I went onto the pitch, if there came a time when I didn't want to get hurt, I knew that my career was over because technically wise, I wouldn't say that that was one of my strengths throughout my career, but I probably put my head and my foot in where, sorry, I probably put my head in where other people won't put the foot in, but I knew when I lost that, that that was probably 70 or 8% of me lost as a player. So the time was right for me to move on. You've been doing that for many years, as you've said, and I'd like to finish with around the quick fire questions. First of all, best players you played with? Oh, <laughs> uh, I think if you if, if you look at United when I was growing up there, Eric Cantona was there. He got Bandy came and trained with us. Roy Keane, Ryan Giggs, Andy Cole, Yapstam. The list goes on. So I don't want to get too too um, too too into it with United because I could just list every single player there. They were I think, you know, at Derby, you had Craig Burley, you had Ravanelli, Stefano Arani, who had played at AC Milan, was an absolute genius with the ball. Um, we had Georgia king Cladzi, who one minute could look disinterested, the next minute you're looking at him thinking, wow, you should be playing at one of the best clubs in Europe. And then Seth Johnson, Roy Delat was there, who's, you know, a real good friend of mine. Then at Southampton, you had James Beattie, Wayne Bridge, who was there, Michael Svensson, um, then Ricardo Fuller. Um, the, the, the list just goes on endless. Uh, Ryan Shawcross, who's had an unbelievable career at Stoke City, Robert Hoof, Andy Griffin. The list is endless. Just really to <laughs> to just put put aside two or three players because there there's been some incredible players that have been fortunate enough to call teammates over the years. Best players you played against? Oof. God, there's been some incredible players as well that I consider myself very fortunate to share the football pitch with them. You know, you got Thierry Henry, Van Nistelrooy, Ronaldo, Rooney, Shearer, um, Burkamp. Once again, the list is just incredibly <laughs> endless. Robin Van Persie. I just consider Drogba, Lampard, Gerrard. I consider myself very fortunate, like I say, that that I was able to to pit my wits against them, more for the knock them out on the wrong end and, and get beat, but but nonetheless, it was it was a privilege to be on the same pitch as them. I'm interested to ask you this because it's something I've always thought about in relation to yourself. Have you ever considered being a manager? I've been asked the question um, quite a few times. Never say never, but not at the moment. Um, I enjoy what I'm doing. I think what I'm doing enables me to switch off. If I go to do a game and I walk away and I'm disappointed that I should have done better, it's on me. It's not on anybody else. Um, and I can deal with that. I think as a manager, you can do everything Monday to Friday and you'll need one player to let you down. And I've been that player at times who's probably let a manager down on the pitch and they have to suffer the consequences. 
So I never say never, but at the moment, you know, like I say, I go and do my work. And if I have a bad day, if I do a bad game, do a bad show, it's on me and it's my fault and I can deal with that. Um, but management, not at the moment. Like I say, maybe in the long run, but definitely not at the moment. Most underrated teammate you had? Oh. I'm going to go ahead and say Rory Delap because if you say Rory Delap, first thing that comes to anybody's head is a long throw. You know, but he, he was more than that. You know, played with him at, at Derby, at Southampton, and at Stoke. Played in multiple positions, could run all day. Scored some incredible goals as well. Um, a very, very unselfish player. And great, great in both boxes. So I'm going to say Rory, just because of the simple facts of, like I say, in years to come and even now, if people mention Rory Delap, the first thing they'll think about is, is his long throw when he's got a lot more than that. What was the favourite goal you scored in your career? Favourite goal? Oof. I think, obviously, the goal against Newcastle, you know, stands out for me. Um, but I'd probably say is in terms of um, the, the quality of the goal. I'd probably say against Newcastle for Stoke, a free kick. Um, everything was just going right for the team then. It was probably one of the best performances. That I've, one of the best team performances I've been involved in. We beat Newcastle 4-0 and it was... It was a free kick, maybe 25 yards out, something like that, and I just hit it, and it just went to the top corner. So that's probably the, the best goal that I've ever scored, I'd say. Who would you say have been the sort of biggest characters you you played with in the sense that they were always up to no good? Um, Liam Lawrence, I'd say. You know, he was always up to trying to play tricks in the dressing room. Andy Griffin, um, James Beattie as well. He was He, he would come in like in the morning, if like if you were tired or what have you, and he would just be full of energy and he just picked the whole of the dressing room up. He was a he was an unbelievable character. Um Ricardo as well in his own way. Great character. Um Derby. Seth as well, Seth Johnson. Um just a num number of really good characters. And they are just a few of them that were that were larger than life. Some known football ones for you, Beach Holiday or City Break. Beach Holiday, 100%. Favourite band? Oh, Favourite band? I'm going to give you three. Oasis, Kings of Leon, and I like The Killers as well. Oh, great choices. Um, Favourite food? Favourite food? I like, I like the Spanish food, so I like seafood, I like fish, um, or any type, any type of thing like that. Your tapas and what have you, love all that. Brilliant. Um, favourite film? Oh, favourite film? Shawshank Redemption. Brilliant film. Oh, great choice. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say to finish was five-a-side team from players you played with in your career. I'm putting you on the spot with that one. Who would five-a-side team and who would manage it? Right. Well, I'm going to take I'm going to take away anybody at United because, like I say, you know, I was yeah. I played only a handful of games, so that doesn't count. So I'm going to go with. Got to have a goalkeeper, so I'll go with Anthony Amy. I think in goal, he was uh, he was different class, Anthony. Um, I'll go with Ricardo Fuller, James Beatty. Who else? Oh, fucking hell, you got me on a spot here. How many is that? Is that three? That's three, three. yes. Two more. Um... Let me think, let me think. Who would, who would it be who would bring that little bit of magic? 
Um, I'll go with Georgia Kinkladzic because I think on a five-a-side, it'd, it'd be incredible. And I'm just going to forget the defending side of things and I will go with Stefano Aranio as well. Oh, brilliant, brilliant answer. And I've actually decided I'm going to ask you one last question just because um, I think um, this one would be interesting. Now, you worked with Alex Ferguson, as you say, for, for many years. If you could work for if you could work as a player under any manager who's managing now, who would you pick and why? Chris Wilder. Chris Wilder. It'd be Chris Wilder and Sheffield United because I've covered Sheffield United over over the last few years, like from League One through to the Championship, and now in the Premier League where they've had an absolutely magnificent season. He's my manager of the year, and I've spoke to him on numerous occasions, and I just can't speak highly enough of him. As a man manager, what he gets out of his players, he takes no crap, no rubbish from anybody, says it as he sees it, and as a player, that's what you want. And ta- uh, tactically wise, absolutely spot on. So for me, like I say, I don't think too many would say because maybe he's not considered as a fashionable manager, but for me, Chris Wilder, without a doubt. Brilliant answers, and thanks for your time, Danny. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. No problem at all. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be